Hey everybody, and welcome to Well Said, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's podcast, where we talk with students, faculty, and staff about what's going on on campus and around the world. And today we're talking sugar taxes with Professor of Nutrition, Barry Popkin. As a researcher and faculty member at the Gillian School of Global Public Health, you spent a lot of time studying obesity. And I guess if we're going to be talking about sugar taxes, the best place to start is obesity in the United States. So when you look at America, how big of an issue is obesity? Obesity represents a problem which probably in health terms contributes more to our health costs than any other major problem today. At one point, tobacco was the leading cause of health costs. But essentially, what the difference is, tobacco kills, obesity debilitates. So we have about two-thirds of adults overweight and obese, and about a third of children. But if you think of the major causes of hospitalization in America and medical costs, diabetes, hypertension, all the cardiovascular diseases, and all the cancers. 13 of the 16 major cancers has now had list obesity as the number one preventive thing they have to do to reduce the incidence of cancer. So it's a major causal factor for cancers as well as cardiovascular disease, but it also debilitates you. It reduces by around eight years your work life. It increases the risk around 50 to 75% of going into a nursing home before 60. Obesity does not kill, it debilitates. And it also cuts productivity at work by about 25%. So we find a lot of hidden costs to obesity, whereas in the case of tobacco, it's all seen right up front. You, you get it, you die, it's over. It's very cheap relatively speaking, in terms of health costs and costs to American society, but it kills a lot of people. When did obesity become a big issue in the United States? Is this something that's been going on for a few decades now? Before the 1960s, really, and 1970s, hunger in America really dominated. We had severe malnutrition that looked just like Zimbabwe or Ethiopia or wherever in the 60s, between food stamp programs, school feeding programs, later the supplemental WIC program for mothers, infants, and children that gave them food and health care. All of these together led to, by 1980, we had really gotten rid of stark hunger, no major malnutrition, little food insecurity. But by that time, obesity became the major issue. And it became the issue because two major things shifted. We had already reduced our activity because of major technological changes in work and cooking and home production. Gradually, we've decreased them since then as we've gotten more and more modern technology at work and things for things like computers, cell phones, et cetera. But what's really been the driver is major new shift in the food industry. The retail sector of food quadrupled in size and grew very rapidly, and it created a whole modern processed packaged food industry, and they marketed it. So we went from consuming three meals a day and maybe a little of some fruit or coffee for a snack with some water or milk or a cookie to having snacks that equal the size of meals so that today about a quarter of our calories come from snacking. We eat six times a day, not three times or three and a quarter times like we used to with a tiny snack. Snacks are equal to meals for children and adolescents. So our eating changed and our drinking changed. We shifted from water and milk among children and adolescents to 
caloric beverages, soft drinks, energy drinks, fruit drinks. They've all at different points, sports drinks. And so then our diet shifted from consuming about a few percent of calories from beverages other than milk. And today, America's children consume about three-fourths of their calories from what I would consider junk food. Grain-based desserts is a big domination there, crackers, cookies, other things, soft drinks, other things, so that we don't eat much real food. And so our diet has shifted remarkably. When you're talking about this diet shift that has really created this obesity issue in the United States, is one of the biggest topics sugar? I mean, it's in everything that we eat right now. Would you say sugar is one of the biggest problems? The leading factor is our, our energy imbalance and what causes it. Sugar tends to be a major causal factor today because it's in 80% of our food, it's hidden in breads, in everything, in packaged processed food, 80% of what America buys in calories and in volume and in just the number of products contains added sugars. So they put it in everything. But what sugar has are two components. There's what we call fructose and glucose. That every sugar has about equal amounts of each. And the fructose affects our fat around our heart and our liver, and it goes directly into affecting our kidney fat and creating a lot of problems in kidney and, and liver disease. And it has one pathway, and the glucose has another. And together, sugar has turned out to be something we didn't understand before as a major problem. But it's also our refined carbohydrates, our lack of consuming fruits and vegetables and, 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 and beans and other healthy foods, and our shift to very high, a diet dominated by refined carbohydrates, dominated by added sugars and sodium. That's the American diet today. It's very little real food, very little cooking, and we've gone from spending two and a half hours a day to spending 20 minutes a day in cooking. On the average, for the average American, if you talk to college graduates today or you talk to community college graduates, very few of them cook. They eat out. They buy ready-to-eat, ready-to-heat foods. That's two-thirds of the food we buy are either ready-to-eat, just eat it as it is, add some milk to the cereal, or heat it up, and then it's ready. So then I guess that's where sugar taxes come into play. When you enact these sugar taxes, what's the focus? What are you trying to achieve? We're most concerned when you drink your sugar and drink your calories because one of the things that happen with evolution, you may not know it, but we die within four to seven days if we don't drink water. On the other hand, you could actually live for two months easily if you had no food. So you may feel hungry, but your body can live, survive for that long. So Man, over all the generations and thousands of years that we've evolved into who we are today, needed to drink every day. And so somehow what we drink doesn't affect what we eat. And so when we shifted from drinking water and then later in the last 100 to 150 years, milk also in, in great amounts, and adults drank more beer and alcohol, but essentially we kept that lower. But when we shifted and went from consuming in calories beverages 100 a day to three or 400 a day, and we have 40 to 60% of Americans consuming six to 800 calories a day of sugary beverages, we changed that part of our diet, but it didn't affect what we ate. Our food intake remained the same. We don't compensate when we drink a beverage, whether it's water, soft drink, or milk. So the calories are added. 
And if the calories become all these sugary beverages, sports drinks, energy drinks, soft drinks, it just added weight to us. So sugary beverages is the first thing people are trying to tax. They're trying to tax not only sugar in soft drinks and sports drinks and energy drinks, but if they, we could also in dairy products, sugary dairy products are equally bad, yogurt drinks, chocolate milk, and ultimately we'll probably start trying to regulate and tax fruit juices. 100% fruit juice has no health benefit. People may have learned an apple a day keeps a doctor away, but a glass of orange juice a day actually increases your risk of diabetes by about 20%. So are these sugar taxes being used anywhere yet? Right now, we have very small taxes on anything other than Berkeley, which put an extra 10% tax on soft drinks, which did turn, even in Berkeley, where they consume a fourth of what the national average consumption of soft drinks is, it still cut their consumption and decreased their sales of soft drinks, increased it of other beverages. So the junk food tax, the only country that's put in the serious junk food tax right now is Mexico. And again, they put an 8% tax on. It's too small. There's a country that will put a 30 to 40% tax on next year. And there are several countries looking because most of what we call all these refined carbohydrates, high sugar, high fat, what we call junk food in our country, the, the candy bars, the, the sugary beverages, the salty snacks, the chips, all these things are very unhealthy. They could be made healthy. They could be baked. They could be made with whole grains. They could be made very different, but they're not. And so we need to find a way to incentivize the industry to change and reformulate. It takes regulations. The food industry has made so much profit from the soft drinks and the junk food that they're not going to change unless we regulate it. So with these sugar taxes already in action in some places, is there any evidence that says that it does help with the reduction of sugar consumption that will eventually help with the obesity issue? The major argument of the food industry is this tax is what we call regress. It affects the poor more than the rich. What we found in the countries and as well as in Berkeley, which we're evaluating and haven't published our results yet, that when the tax is applied, the low-income population adjusts much more quickly and cuts their consumption of the tax beverages and high income don't. So what really happens is low income America, low income Mexico, where the first large national tax was applied, cut way back on the sugar sweetened beverage consumption. And the tax was paid by the high income population. The low and middle income groups cut their consumption. The issue is these are the groups in America and Mexico that have a higher risk of obesity, a higher risk of diabetes and hypertension, but they also don't have the money to treat it properly. So these are the undiagnosed, untreated health groups that really are benefited by improving their diet and cutting out the sugary beverages. So that that tax has very critical health benefits to a group that doesn't have good health. And at the same time, most of the tax is actually paid by the people who don't change their consumption. The high-income groups, which have health insurance, get medical treatment, get their diabetes and hypertension taken care of. So it's kind of a win-win. The tax is paid by one group. The health benefits go to the group that doesn't have them to start with. What are some of the challenges that come along with these sugar taxes? I mean, everybody loves their sugar. So there has to be people who oppose this. Well, there are two kinds of challenges. One is something that happened with cigarettes but isn't happening with soft drinks. It's leakage. If you tax in 
New York, a dollar a pack for cigarettes. They'll try to bring them in from North Carolina where the tax is five cents, and they did. And they have, and they've been caught for kind of illegally trying to sell in that state untaxed. So that's what we call leakage. And so in the soft drink, that means if you tax Philadelphia, maybe people will go to New Jersey to buy their soft drinks. But we found in Berkeley there was no change in shopping behavior. We found in Mexico with the borders as they are, it doesn't. We don't know in Philadelphia, but we suspect from because of the large volume, there won't be people going as often when they shop. People haven't changed their shopping behavior in Berkeley, low income or high income. So we don't expect to see much of that in Philadelphia. So the leakage side, we don't expect. Other issue is the food industry. The major group that doesn't want this is the food and beverage industry. They're afraid of regulations. They think once you open the door to regulations to improve people's health, we'll want more of them. And and if the regulations work, like the sugar, sweetened beverage taxes work marvelously in Mexico, low-income population by 12 months after the tax had cut by 17% their consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages, and they were the highest consumer in the world and now the fourth highest. The highest now is Chile and the U.S. is second, and the United Kingdom is third. So the tax worked for them. Actually, even in unpublished data that we've just submitted to a journal to publish, in Berkeley, we found a reduction in consumption and sales. So we expect, actually, that the tax will help Philadelphians, but the food industry is fighting very hard, but the government is very wise. They're using the money from the tax to provide free daycare for low-income preschoolers, to improve the parks in Philadelphia, and do a number of things that help low- and middle-income populations. And Philadelphia happens to be one of the poorest cities now in America, with one of the highest unemployment. So these groups will be benefited immensely, and the health benefits will come to them And so we see it as a win-win, but the food industry definitely is fighting very hard not to have that tax because that's the size tax we would like. That's about a 30% tax on soft drinks, which really increases the price so people really will think, particularly teenagers, the highest consuming group, won't be able to stop after school as much and buy a soft drink. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And don't forget to check back to unc.edu in two weeks for the next episode of Well Said.